This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, I got to just say it. I'm going to put it out there. And I say this every time he joins us. I could talk to him for a couple of hours. We're talking about Scott Galloway. He's author of several books, including The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. He's also wrote uh, wrote, uh, The Algebra of Happiness, The Pursuit of Success, Love, and What It All Means, which is a perfect book for right now. Professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. He has founded multiple tech firms. Uh, Great to have back with us and talk about his new book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to opportunity. Scott Galloway, he is with us on the phone from uh, California. Scott, so nice to have you here with us. How are you? I'm great, Carol, but I'm feeling especially good after that introduction. And I could speak to Carol Master for hours. I listen to you in my car. Uh, well, I'm going to hold it to you, hold you to it, because I really, I do. I feel like you get us thinking, and there's so much going on in the world um, right now where so much has happened to us, and I do wonder about what happens on the other side of it. So first of all, Tell us about kind of your world right now. I mean, you've been teaching, I'm assuming. I mean, tell us about how you've been kind of taking everything in in this world that is 2020. Well, you don't like to say this out loud, but if you have, if you've been blessed with with health and the people you love are healthy Mm -hmm. and you make a good living and you have a nice home and you're a little bit older and maybe, you know, have a fortunate enough to own real estate and own stocks. The pandemic for a lot of those people has meant more time with their children, more time with Netflix. You get back five to 10 hours of commuting, the air is cleaner, and your stock market portfolio is at an all-time high. So, you know, that's both a good and a bad thing. I would argue that uh, COVID-19 is more of an accelerant than it is a change engine, and some of the dysfunctional income inequality attributes of our economy have absolutely become dystopian. So I would argue a lot of the wealthiest people are living their best lives right now. And I I think, unfortunately, it's taken a real toll on the 90% that maybe a little bit younger, not as economically well-off, had jobs that were lower income and more susceptible. So this is really a K-shaped recovery on a lot Mm -hmm. of levels. I've talked with Peter Atwater over at William & Mary. I, I totally, I think that is how we describe our time. You know, in your book, Scott, you write, and forgive me, I I hate quoting someone's book back to someone who (laughs) <laughs> the person who wrote it. But it stuck with me. Whether the U.S. is headed for a Hunger Games future or something brighter depends on which path we choose post-corona. I do feel like we're at this interesting time where whether it's the health pandemic, whether it's racial inequalities, injustices, there's so many things that are wrong right now. And I do wonder, do we learn from it? Can we be smarter? And do we come out better on the other side? And I wonder, what do we need to do to come out better on the other side? Well, yeah, you know, word, and I hope so, sister, the, the, hmm. the Chinese term for crisis is, is interpreted as the intersection between opportunity and risk. And it, there's two paths here. And I would argue it needs to, you know, loosely speaking, the path to a brighter future involves, in my view, a re-embrace of capitalism. But capitalism, if you will, is a full body contact, certain Darwinian harshness for corporations that duke it out. And that competition and that violence creates such incredible spoils that we can be generous with people. We can afford to pay for Social Security that takes seniors' poverties, poverty among seniors from 38% to 11%. We can pay for Medicare. I would argue that this crisis illuminates a very unhealthy feature, and that is we've decided that companies deserve more generosity, and people are less protected. In sum, I think the opportunity here is to realize we need to protect people 
and not companies. And then the other word I would use is camaraderie. We need to mm-hmm. rejoin hands with our brothers and sisters in Europe and recognize the value of the North American Treaty, the Paris Accords, the World Health Organization, and just generally have more empathy for one another and try and see each other as Americans before we see each other as Republicans or Democrats. Most crises have done that. I worry this crisis, it's not obvious that this crisis is bringing us together. So a re-embrace of capitalism and camaraderie are, I think, the call signs to move to opportunity as opposed to the risks. I like this idea of re-embrace capitalism because it's just interesting. I have conversations with my nieces who are younger and they're like, capitalism is terrible, Aunt Carol. And I'm like, well, no, it's not. It can be very good. But I do wonder how it got to be such a bad thing where... If anything, you created these incredibly wealthy companies, right, um, that sold a lot of stuff, but not everybody got to participate in that wealth creation. Well, I would argue that your, what your nieces are, are saying is not capitalism. When you have uh, you know, full-body contact capitalism on the way up where you privatize the gains, and in the airline industry, as an example, you use 94% of your free cash flow to buy back shares as the senior executive's uh, compensation is based on the value of those shares. And then on the way down, you say, we're in this together, and you ask for a bailout. Capitalism on the way up and socialism on the way down is cronyism. Hmm. And so I think, I think they're right to be skeptical of capitalism, where an older, middle class, mostly white, mostly college-educated cohort is capturing gains. And when they hit a tough time, they want to borrow money and time against future generations and out-of-control deficits and claim that we're all in this together on the downside. So I don't think what we're seeing is capitalism. Capitalism is not an organic state. Yeah. It has to rest on a base of empathy, and I'll use the R word, redistribution of income. And we seem to have found incredible empathy and generosity for these companies that we uh, idolize and turn into people, and then seem to be very harsh with people. That's not capitalism. That's cronyism. Yeah. That's the hunger game. So what I would argue is they're not witnessing capitalism at its best. Okay, so how do we, we've got about 50 seconds, and then I got to do some news and we'll come back. I told you I could talk to you for hours. Um, so how do we, how do we get away from this cronyism? I mean, man, you look at Congress, and that's what it's all about. Um, and elsewhere, how do we remove it? And just got about 40 seconds. Uh, so on a corporate level, I think the fastest thing we could do to reoxygenate the economy would to be fund the FTC and the DOJ and go through every industry, whether it's big tech, big ag, big pharma, and break them up and oxygenate the economy and give small and medium-sized companies the same fighting chance they've always had to create two-thirds of the jobs. And we've let big companies overrun government and overrun small and medium-sized companies. I think cross individuals I think we could need a greater sense of empathy and camaraderie for each other, whether it's national service where we all serve in the same uniform right out of high school. I think gap years should become the norm, mm-hmm. not the exception, and find common cause so we see each other as Americans as opposed to Democrats and Republicans. So, Scott, what I do wonder is, and one of the things you write about is kind of how we have you know, broken this contract, this agreement that these promises that if you worked hard, you had talent, you know, anybody could do better and 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 do well in our society. You know, my dad was first generation and he raised seven kids and it's pretty remarkable what he was able to do with, you know, great, you know, parents that came over from Europe. So I do wonder what's happened. Can we get back that contract? Yeah, Carol, I th- so I think you zero in on what is the uh, ground zero of some of the anger, whether it's the protests, whether it's a disaffection or a lack of confidence in capitalism. And that is for the first time in our nation's history, a 30-year-old 
man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at the age of 30. Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, why is that? And the, the good news is, is that there's no excuse for it because the prosperity we have recognized over the last 30 years, whether it's GDP, slow but steady growth, market gains, you know, the, the prosperity that is there. The problem is we haven't made much progress And that I would argue that our tax structure, our education system that's drunk on luxury, it seems like what we have said with our priorities, our tax policy, only letting in fewer and fewer kids to elite schools, turning into a caste system instead of the upper lubricant of the middle class, it feels as if we're saying to America that our priority is to take the top 1% and turn them into billionaires, as opposed to taking the bottom 99% and giving them a shot at being in the 1%. So we have to, I think, return to the notion that we have to fall back in love with the unremarkables. If you're born wealthy, if you're incredibly remarkable, there's never been a better time to be American. But America used to be a place where the unremarkables could have remarkable futures. I think it's about education. I think it's about tax policy, where the top 0.1% don't pay the lowest tax rate. It's about universities like mine falling back in love with unremarkable kids and not bragging that we're rejecting 95% of our applicants and then forcing middle-class households to go into debt. We've affected a a reallocation or transition of capital, $1.6 trillion from middle-class homes to universities. That is morally criminal. So, yeah, I, I, I think we have to get back to this notion that America needs to fall back in love with its unremarkables. The remarkables have killed it. Good for them. It's time to focus again on the other 99%. So I am wondering on this Thanksgiving Eve, you know, is there hope out there? You know, do you see anything out there that does give you some hope that – you know, we're not going to just keep talking about the problems, but we're actually going to have some form of action and make a change so that we do embrace the unremarkables and that we kind of, you know, raise up those that have really been forgotten. I mean, I think about the po- the political scene. It, to me, it makes sense why people were angry, because there have been a lot of people left behind and forgotten. So do you have hope <laughs> that we can that we will fix this and do better? Well, as you've probably discovered, Carol, I'm a, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. Uh, but <laughs> look, I think there's I think there's enormous silver linings yeah. in healthcare. Ninety nine percent of the people that have contracted, endured, and developed antibodies for the novel coronavirus will have never stepped in foot in a doctor's office, much less a hospital. We might be able mm-hmm. to offer healthcare remotely that brings down costs and takes our healthcare system off its heels and onto its toes and starts offering great primary care at a lower cost. We might, in my industry be able to take advantage of remote remote learning and double our admittance rates, double the supply, and take education back to where it needs to be with much greater admittance rates and much lower costs. We might decide to leave emissions behind. We might decide to take that time we spent commuting and spend more time with our families or making money. There is absolutely nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with it. And this is not the world we live in. This is the world we make of it. We're at a critical juncture here. and It's up to us. Okay. Having said that, I'd be remiss if I don't at least tap into all of the great writings that you've done about kind of our tech space and those, you know, companies that we talk about ad nauseum, whether it's ads, you know, Tesla, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Twitter, uh, whether it's Google. Um, What's the role that they need to play in all of this, in your view? I think they're playing that role. I think they're profit seeking. I don't think they look left or right. I think they look down and focus on how to increase their earnings. I think the role is for government to provide the same level of scrutiny, whether it's antitrust or regulation, that we've provided uh, against other companies and other industries, and that at some point the company becomes so powerful that the best way to oxygenate that sector 
is to do what we did with AT&T or the aluminum companies or the oil companies, go out and break them up. And then within 10 years, as we've seen with AT&T or the spin of PayPal, those companies are worth exponentially more. So I think it's regulators that have to step in and say, all right, congratulations. Antitrust isn't a punishment. It's a reward that you have become, you are so good. You are now performing infanticide on small companies, prematurely euthanizing big companies, which tend to be better employers and better taxpayers. We're going to break you up and we're going to unleash incredible innovation. And if you want to see the markets go to new highs, break these companies up. We need to go through big tech, big pharma, big ag and oxygenate the marketplace with antitrust. Well, I have to say, you always leave us with lots of things to think about. And, um, you know, your book, you know, ends with America isn't what it is, but what we make of it. I mean, we as individuals also have a role, right, in all of this, just quickly. A hundred percent, you know, <laughs> be, the, be the man or the woman your kids think you are. Uh, this is an extraordinary time to reach out to people. People remember how you behave in a crisis. People will remember how you behaved in this crisis. Make sure the people in your circle are healthy and happy. And then if you have, if you're blessed, reach out to people who will never know your name. This is, that's, Americans are the most generous people in the world. Let's live, let's live up to that. Yeah, the sense of community has never been as important. Hey, Scott, thank you so much. Have a safe um, and good holiday. Happy Thanksgiving. And uh, our thanks to Scott Galloway. He does always leave us with so much to think about, certainly for me. Professor at NYU Stern School of Business. His new book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity. Check it out. Check out, to the Algebra of Happiness. Whenever I'm a little lost, I go back and check it out. <laughs>